With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to episode one of season two of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereux, and today I am joined by not only Ben Carsley, um, but I am joined by a special guest, Jeff uh, Pasternostro of BP. Um, he is the lead writer of the Prospect team here at BP, and uh, he's going to be on today to talk about some uh, Red Sox prospects and kind of break down the uh, the state of the system after uh, very many trades in the off season, and that's kind of the last time you guys have heard from us. So, uh, welcome, Jeff and Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice, nice to be back. Absolutely, it's been a bit of a hiatus here. Um, we haven't been on since the the Chris Sale trade reaction, so there's definitely a lot to discuss. Um, as always, you can follow Ben Carsley at, at Ben Carsley and Jeff at at Jeff Pastor Nostro. Um, so. Yeah, you guys have very easy Twitter handles, um, but let's get uh, let's get into this sock system. So, two trades, both massive. Um, the Chris Sale trade and the Tyler Thornburg trade um, left this system. Um, I guess we should say a little bit more empty uh, than it was before those trades. And by a little bit, I mean a whole crapload more empty. Um, than it was before those two. I think most people aren't complaining because Chris Sale is just amazing and Thornburg really filled a need, but 
Um, the guys that they gave up in those trades to remind everybody, Moncada, Kopech, Basabe, Victor Diaz in the Chris Sale trade, and then uh, Shaw, Mauricio Dubon, and Josh Pennington in the Thornburg trade. So, um, Jeff, what was your reaction to those two moves? And, uh, you know, what did you think of the guys that went the other way? I think anytime you can get Chris Sale, you just go and get Chris Sale. Um, and look, they kept the top prospect in the system. They kept a top 15 prospect in, in Raphael Devers. They had a they got very good value out of this year's uh, first round pick with Jason Groom, who was ranked higher on most draft boards than the spot he was actually taken at. So they still have some impact talent potential impact talent on the farm they sent a lot of it out and that's what you have to do to get chris sale and they got chris sale and now they have chris sale so you're i I can't formulate a great argument for not trading for chris sale um they have a lot to get him um as you do uh the tyler thornburg deal like i like tyler thornburg a lot i think he's a very good reliever Mm -hmm. you know i like mauricio dubon um, and the other arm they traded in that deal, whose name escaped me, 450 prospects ago, um, is a nice upside flyer. Yeah, Pennington, right? Yeah, yeah, Pennington. Josh Pennington, I think. Josh Pennington, yep. Yeah, yeah I got the first name at least. Is um, <laughs> is like that's the kind of second guy in a deal, low minors, big arm, probably a reliever, but you know, in by in four years he has a chance to be Tyler Thornburg maybe. That's that's fine. It's pretty good value you know Dubon was a pop-up prospect to a certain extent though I like him a lot and think he'll have a long major league career it's just a matter of you gotta give up prospect talent to get those kind of guys and Dave Dombrowski is not afraid to do that and he's built what is on paper the best team in the AL East that's all you can really do yeah. The reaction to uh, it, it, it's great to live in Boston and see these things happen because the reaction when Ben Charrington was the GM was always, OK, great. We have a good farm system. But when are any of these guys going to turn into talent? Like, you know, all we're doing is hoarding these prospects. And then Dombrowski trades them for one of the five best pitchers on the planet. And the reaction is, what is he doing? Our farm system is terrible now. So uh, I think it just goes to prove you truly cannot win. Yeah, I feel like I'd agree with that as well. It it, it definitely seems like um, David Dombrowski understands that the goal of the farm system is to help the big league club, and whether or not that's through letting these guys develop and come up, you know, if it's that way, it's that way. Um, but for him and with this team and with the, the core of young players, it really just did seem to make sense to mortgage some of these guys to go out and get a Chris Sale that maybe does put you over the top. Uh, especially as you look to adjust to life after David Ortiz. I mean, absolutely. And the there's prospect lists are an arbitrary cutoff in some ways. I mean, this list looks a lot better if you include Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts, as we do on our 25 and under list. Um, I mean, they're, we kind of accepted they're just going to call this the killer bees, and it's going to be really obnoxious. But it's a good <laughs> it's it's a good young core of talent. Um, they have. The rotation between the the midseason Pomeranz deal and the sale trade and whatever Rick Porcello is now gives them a little bit more rotation depth for a uh, shorter playoff series. And you go from there. So it sounds like you like the Chris Sale trade for the Red Sox and you're okay with the Thornburg trade. But you you did mention 
um, Pomerantz a little bit. And that trade that happened midseason was a little bit more controversial. Uh, my gut reaction when it happened was that I hated the trade. And then after I did like three or four of these podcasts, um, some of my co-hosts kind of talked me into it a little bit. And I got behind it. Um, but now I hate it again. Um, but what yeah, did you I think mean... of the, the Espinosa for Pomerantz deal? That was kind of an odd, odd trade. The pitching market right now is pretty extreme in terms of what teams are looking for and uh, for value for you know I, I don't know what drew pomeranz is he was a loogie 18 months ago so uh, i mean maybe we judge him as a three now um and even that's uh you don't it's just tough to get those guys uh we were looking at the the free agent pitching class for next offseason it's like well maybe johnny cueto and Masahiro Tanaka opt out, and then it's like Jeremy Hellickson. Drew Pomeranz is probably better than Jeremy Hellickson. Yeah, I'd agree with um, that. And it's just, it's it's tough to get these guys. You either have to develop them, or you have to, you know, pay through the nose for Chris Sale. You know, Pomeranz isn't on that level, and they didn't have a, a return on that level. But yeah, you know, Anderson and Espinosa for a one-for-one one deal, um, is a nice little return. Look, he's a long way away. He's a short right-hander, so there's always going to be nagging questions about whether he's a starter long-term. But it's, you know, again, you've got to... Can I swear on this podcast? Go for it. Absolutely. Dave Dombrowski does not give a fuck about your prospects. He just (laughs) doesn't. He doesn't. And that's, you know, that's... It's like, you sort of... I'll betray my italian heritage here but it's like a godfather thing you, know, you get the wartime consigliere and the peacetime consigliere dave dombrowski is the wartime consigliere like you know what you're getting I'll, i like that i'll throw this question to you first ben and then you can weigh in on it a little bit as well um when looking at that trade it definitely seemed like a strong preference trade from Dave Dombrowski like obviously they were filling a need and they were anticipating that the market was going to be difficult for starting pitching but I looked at this more of Dombrowski has a certain type of body type that he looks for in a starting pitcher and um, you know barely six feet or 510 or whatever um, that Espinosa is throwing that velocity uh, I I think he just kind of looked at that pick package and was like yeah i don't see that working long term and i think that that was more of a preference thing um when he did decide to make that move what did you think of that and kind of what's your reaction to the trade now that we've had a few months to um kind of cool down and take a take a little bit of a longer look at it yeah i mean if that if that factored into a certain extent it wouldn't shock me i mean i think about i think you're right when you look at the track record of pitchers dombrowski has acquired none of them have looked like espinoza I think it was more of, of a need thing. I mean, you know, it's easy to forget now, but the Red Sox really had a need in the middle to back of their rotation at the time of the Pomeranz trade. Sean I mean, O'Sullivan Red... was still making starts. Yeah, at that exactly. Point. Like yeah. Sean O'Sullivan and Henry Owens and Rowenus Elias, like they really still needed a starter at that point. Um, and this is also before the sale trade, obviously, when the system was a lot deeper. And they were trying to win, man. Like they had David Ortiz in their last season. They had the best offense in baseball. They they were trying to win. So. I think it was, uh, you know, it wasn't really an all-in move, but I thought it was a, a strong acquisition, and you know, it didn't didn't collapse. It also didn't work out quite as well as everyone would have hoped. But 
you know, I to me, it's a perfectly defensible move anytime you're trading away someone with as low a probability as Espinoza. And it wasn't a strict rental either. It's not like right, exactly. they're putting all their chips in for three months of Drew Pomeranz. Knowing what we know now, would you have done it again, Ben? I think I would have, yes, because a you, you know you don't you don't know what he's going to give you in that half season. Uh, you know, if he had been as good in Boston as he was in, in San Diego, which I think we knew he wouldn't be quite that good, but even if he had been 15 to 20 percent better than he was, you know, maybe you're looking at a two seed instead of a three seed. And like Jeff just alluded to, I mean, we still have him for for two full seasons now, so that's plenty of time to use him in the rotation or to make him what I think would be a pretty potent lefty weapon out of the pen or to even trade him again and, and maybe recoup some of that lost prospect value. So I, I think I would do it again. Certainly not a bad return for a uh, for a 2014 J2 guy that I'm sure they weren't expecting that much out of uh, that they got out of him. That you know that return is it's substantial. It's certainly substantial. Um, but from all these guys getting traded, this farm system has been left a little devoid of depth for sure. There's still the top end talent there. Um, the guys that we have remaining in the system, Andrew Benintendi, um, in our top 10 from BP when the list first came out, um, Andrew Benintendi is number one, Rafael Devers, number two, Jason Grom, number three, um, Sam Travis, number four, Brian Johnson, uh, is still there, so he's going to be the number five guy, and then Josh Akami at number six. But where do things shake out after that, Jeff? First off, I just want to say that no one is less happy than me, including Red Sox fans, that Brian Johnson is now number five. <laughs> <laughs> it is um, an ugly five. So I am putting together the updated list for the Futures Guide, which will be out early next month. But I mean, I think the obvious ones were uh, uh, Bobby Dahlbeck and Michael Chavez. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was kind of like, I got to take now. Um, So I like Michael Shawarin a lot. Um, I saw him him pitch for Lowell this year and it's, you know, it's it's whatever. It's probably a reliever long term, like a seventh, eighth inning guy. But the system's shallow enough. Like, I don't think it's a. I, I made this comment on the Twins list as well. Or not the Twins list, uh, the White Sox list now. Like, top 10 is kind of an arbitrary number. Like, some teams have really good prospects past their 10th best prospect in their system. We just don't really write about them. Some teams, like the Red Sox now, drop off uh, right before that. Uh, but the Red Sox list, as comprised before these trades, like, was a really interesting top 10, and then not so much after that. Um, and there was funny, funnily enough, the White Sox are now in that situation, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's plenty of systems I wrote about where putting a probable middle reliever, maybe a setup dude with a chance to start for a bit, um, at the back end of a top 10 would be something I had to write. Um, you know, the, the Red Sox are probably a bottom 10 system in baseball now, even with the top end talent. So that's, you know, the kind of guys that show up there, uh, for number 10, like, I don't feel overly beholden to strict ordinal rankings because it generally, and again, it depends on the system, but it tends to get fuzzy once you get past like seven or eight for a lot of these systems. So I might just pick a, a guy I like to write about that's in the same general OFP range, OFP likely range as other guys. And I think we're going to go with Lorenzo Cedrola. Huh. 
who is another guy that's like, yeah, you know the type. It's a speedy center fielder guy that maybe he'll hit, and it's like 18. Interesting. What, what's but your I take like that, on that, I like... then? I don't know a lot about him. It sounds to me like he's, uh, you know, sort of a, a speedy center fielder type who might hit. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's like, you know, it's not a, it's like, it's that, it really is that profile. Like, you know that guy. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's talk about a couple of those back-end guys then. The first one that I want to discuss is Bobby Dahlbeck here. Um, I wrote about him a little while ago, and I thought that he was a really interesting guy. Fourth-round pick, um, 6'4", righty, third baseman out of Arizona. Um, was a two-way player in college and gave up being a pitcher and a hitter. Um, didn't particularly like pitching all that much, but was actually more effective as a pitcher during the College World Series. Um, he destroyed short season ball last year. Um, what do you think of him as a player? What do you think of him focusing now just on hitting? How is that going to impact his value going down the road? Well, uh, the thing about short season ball is it's not like it doesn't tell us much more. Like the sort of the joke is we already know he can hit Pac-10 pitching. So I guess it's Pac-12 now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm, pac- st- I'm still I'm still old enough that I remember the Big Eight and the SWAC. So, but uh, we already know he can hit Pac-12 pitching and. Honestly, the New York Penn League isn't that much better than sort of high-end Division One college baseball. So I don't think there's any new information there. So the question with Dahlbeck is, is he going to hit? Mm-hmm. Because the power is plus-plus raw. He's a big, strong kid. And he's not a bad third baseman. Obviously, he has the arm for the position because he's in the low 90s off the mound. It's just, it's... And look, I'm not a... I'm not going to sit here and and break down video and break down swing mechanics but i know what i'm looking at and what generally works and what doesn't work and i just don't know if he's going to make enough contact against upper level pitching with that swing to really get the power into games enough for a for a corner infield spot um we actually had one baseball protectors prospect team member uh i don't think he was joking like maybe 25 percent joking like oh he'll be a pretty good reliever for the red sox someday <laughs> like you know portending he might he might be a better you know prospect as a as a pitcher but it's you know he's gonna get every chance as a hitter because it's plus plus raw power that you just it, you don't find that kind of right-handed pop it's something that's in demand right now and if it does like even if he can hit like 230 or 240 against major league pitching that's a potential good everyday player um assuming that he draws a a low a assignment this year um do you think that we'll find anything more out about the adjustments that Dahlbeck made last year to his swing because he he definitely changed something in his mechanics from what he was doing in college to what he was doing uh in the new york pen league and made some adjustments in I don't know whether or not he was really shorter to the ball or whatever it was, but do you think that we'll we'll know a little bit more about him as a player after this uh, season? I'll say my observations, and I want to preface this by saying I saw him for a doubleheader, mm-hmm. um, so it's not a it's not as long a look as I like to make a you know make sweeping pro- proclamations about a player's hit tool. Um, I mean, I can see a guy ten times, and I'm still a little uncomfortable with that, but. It's not he he's not appreciably long for a power hitter. Like it's not 
purely length that uh, gets him his power. I just, he's very, very willing to expand the zone. And like, look, you can see guys fail a little bit at off speed at this level. And, and a lot of time the off speed is not very good. But one thing that worries me is guys that are willing to expand the zone vertically, especially on fastballs. Um, you can beat him up and he'll swing at it, mm-hmm. which makes me nervous going forward. That's, that's something that's not particularly easy to unlearn. And look, even if it, like I said, even if it works out for him, it's probably not going to be a, uh, an average major league hit tool. It doesn't have to be given the the amount of raw power here. But I don't know if A ball will be the test. I think he'll be able to do enough there to keep him on prospect radars. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, he's, he's one of those guys where it's going to be double A velocity, double A spin, double A sequencing, where I think sort of the rubber meets the road with that kind of profile. Like it could fall apart in A ball, um, but I don't think it necessarily will though i the the jump from short season to full season is an underrated jump but for a guy that you know performed in a major ncaa division one uh college program college league i don't think that's really uh going to be a huge test for him uh anything on dahlbeck for you ben no, I mean, I think that just about covers it. Uh, a guy I wanted to ask about who you didn't mention is uh, Ronnie L. Raudas, who I know uh, you know, doesn't always have the most glowing reports for his stuff, but pitched very, very well in, uh, in single A last season and is only 19. So I guess talk about why he doesn't enter uh, even sort of the consideration phase for you here. Like, I get that he's 19, or I was 18 last year. And that, and that like, look, that... Age relative to league matters. I think it matters less for pitchers than it does for hitters. But it's like these guys, like he's again, he's like a shorter, slighter framed righty without a big fastball that has some pitchability and some feel for his secondary. It's like those guys kill a ball, whether they're 18 or whether they're, you know, 22 year olds coming out of, you know, Saturday night starters from college. Right. You just see it happen. Um, and the reports on the stuff didn't that we got just didn't justify a top 10 ranking. And look, I could have I could easily put him over Lorenzo Cedrola. Like he was in that mix for a, a top 10 spot now. But and again, the difference between even, you know, like Dahlbeck and, and Chabi, so are probably going to be six, seven in some order. And, you know, guys like Raudes, uh, CJ Chatham. It's not much of a difference, really. It's it's very flat at that point, but it's just an out. And for me, it's like I just don't like that profile. There's a little bit of bias that that comes into it too in that regard. Like I just I see the those guys, and it's just it never. Even if even if he is the outlier here, where he like it works all the way up and he's like a four starter. I'm going to be the last person to buy in on it. Just so you know, (laughs) is, uh, one of the things that I hear about Rod is a lot when I read about him is that he does have this, this kind of high end makeup. Like he, you know, when he gives up a mistake pitch or he gives up an extra base hit, he kind of is easily able to shake that off and kind of get his head back in the game and, and recover very quickly. Um, how much stock do you put into that when you're kind of doing, your rankings here and, and assessing guys. Yeah, sure. It's like baseball is very self-selecting in that regard. Like if you're a guy that 
gets rattled on the mound when you get into a jam or give up a few hits or give up a bomb. Like, you're not going to even pitch as well on A ball as, as Rodis did. It's very much, you know, you've got to be able to have that sort of, I guess, basic level of makeup um, just to get as far as A ball. Um, but at a certain level, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, something that's going to miss upper level bats, and I just don't know if he has it yet. Right. The stuff needs to be there for him to. I mean, like, look, I love, like, uh, you know, makeup pitchability guys. That's great. Um, You know, again, I could name a dozen probably more I've seen over the years. You know, and sometimes they do uh, they do find a way. Uh, Liam Hendricks is a guy I saw a bunch in double A and he kind of never looked like much. I think it was after he'd already gotten a taste of the majors, too, was sort of before he sort of reemerged as a pretty good reliever. I go, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. It's like 88 to 91, can throw four pitches for strikes, work backwards, sequencing, has a plan up there, knows what he's doing. But every time I saw him in double A, he got knocked around. Um, um, so what? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I'm there. Um, moving on to uh, another guy on this list, um, I wanted to talk about Michael Chavis. Um, you mentioned him, and he's a name that a lot of Red Sox prospect fans have heard for years now. And kind of a guy that I think a lot of people are frankly getting fatigued about but um, last year he did start off the year pretty good uh, and then got hurt Um, so why are we keeping the faith here with Chavez you know draft pedigree does matter Um, he was considered to be a pretty good bet to hit coming out of high school and he just like guys get hurt it's not the uh, end of the world and his specific issue you know being a, a hand issue really makes it difficult to sort of evaluate him as a prospect I mean, he's going to get another pop at it next year and i think we'll have more information there and look and in, in most systems in better systems you know is he a, is he a top 10 prospect probably not he's like a oh post hype sleeper we love that phrase post hype sleeper um and he still is a post-hype sleeper. He's just also a top 10 prospect in the Red Sox system right now. Um, you know, it's always going to be a little bit of a of a tricky profile, you know, as a corner guy now. Though he, you know, he obviously showed plenty of power in the South Atlantic League, um, <laughs> which is not the easiest league to hit in. So it's just he's a very difficult guy to get a handle on right now. Um, and I think 2018 will be very telling, or 2017. I'm still talking about him in 2018 in those terms. It's probably not the best uh, thing in the world. (laughs) So, Jeff, if we stay on disappointing Red Sox first round draft picks, I mean, we could do an entire podcast on that. But uh, what in the hell? What the hell happened to Trey Ball? How did it it fall apart so quickly? It's, it's, uh, you know, it's projectable dudes have to project is what it comes down to. They don't always project. Like, that's sort of the implication, right? They're projectable, which really what that means is they have to get better Yeah. in a way. So we were talking about physical projection, of course, too, but that doesn't always work out that way. You know, sometimes you draft a six-foot-six string bean, and he turns into Noah Syndergaard, and other times it's just a tall dude without great stuff. 
Are you at the point where you would try Ball, uh, you know, in the outfield? I know he was drafted as a two-way player. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm there yet. Like, it's always the thing about those kind of decisions is like, yeah, I mean, I love doing fun stuff like that. Like, convert everyone to catcher. Like, yeah, like you got like a second, like a squat, like second baseman that you know, whatever, convert him to catcher. Try that. Like, you have to get player buy-in is the thing. Like. You can't just sort of half-ass that. Like, the guy really has to want to be a position player now. Well, the Red Sox are pretty good at half-assing that. They did that with Blake Swihart this past year. That was true. <laughs> and look, like, he, he's going to be 23. They're probably going to start him in, in double-A this year. <sighs> you know, he's still walking the ballpark. I don't – this stuff's not great. Like, But, you know, sometimes those guys take a little bit longer to develop – he was a cold weather pitcher. We can sort of keep telling ourselves that, but yeah. he's left he's left handed, so you know, fuck it, man. Just keep throwing him out there and maybe you get a loogie out of it. Have him drop down or something, I don't know. Um, before you try him as a position player, you know, four years later at this point. How I don't bad? have a good answer here, other than yeah, he wasn't really in consideration for the top ten at any point in the process. How bad of a first round pick is is Trey Ball? Like I'm sure you've seen a lot of first round picks oh, fail as you've he's been not, covering no, this he's stuff. Not, but... He's not nearly that bad. No. Well, like I mean, no. I mean, makes like, me feel better. pitcher pitchers bust all the time. <laughs> I always take a look at his like. Uh, you know, this actually isn't the best example because that top ten was actually uh, full of dudes that are going to make the majors or have already made the majors. Well, I don't know about Mark <laughs> yeah. Hell. Mark Appel's a weird one and didn't sign that year anyway. But, uh, like, I don't know. Cole Stewart was three spots above him. And, look, Cole Stewart's still a really good, uh, a pretty good pitching prospect. Really good pitching prospect, I'd say, even. Um, but he also really hasn't found an out pitch yet. And would I be shocked if he ends up, like, just another up-and-down reliever? Not stuff happens a lot of time because he's a pitcher. And, like, top ten first round pitching prospects uh, don't always work out that great. Uh, well, there's Mark Appel again. Uh, <laughs> like uh, Kyle Zimmer, there's a bigger one. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he got hurt. So that, that's the difference, I guess. Like dudes get hurt or sometimes dudes get hurt and you don't really hear about it and their stuff goes backwards a little bit sometimes guys never throw harder than they did when they were pitching once a week whether it's in high school or college you know i can i buy a dollar for every pitching prospect whose report was like 91 to 95 as an amateur and then i see him in short season ball or in full season the next year and it's like 88 to 92 i would be a very rich man because <laughs> that happens all the time at this point i'm almost where I'm just like, I'm going to assume this guy throws, will, you know, show up in pro ball throwing two to three miles an hour slower than his uh, sort of amateur draft report. That doesn't really apply to like the top tier guys usually, but I mean, it can in some cases. It's a very, you know, it's when you always, all of a sudden you have to throw every five or every six days, it does make a difference. So as we look a little bit more at the the depth of this system here and you know, we we realized that there have only been three guys that made the top 101 this year from the Red Sox system in Benintendi, Devers, and Grom. Um, 
who outside of that list has a chance to kind of vault themselves into the top 101 next year are there any names in particular here in the top 15 or 20 that you're going to be looking at to make that jump oh man <laughs> that's a no <laughs> like that's not good ben ah <laughs> uh, i mean akemi maybe i just, we don't rate first base prospects so <laughs> we rate two of them i mean i like the power He's got a built-in cool nickname. You can just call him, like, Doc Ock. Ooh, cool. um, Ooh that's good. Yep. Yeah. We, we could always comp it. him to CJ Cron if you had to. I mean, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Is he a three-true outcomes guy, Josh Hockamy? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Would you compare I mean, him? Like, how would he compare to a guy like Bobby Bradley? Uh, I mean, he's not. Bobby Bradley's, well, Bobby Bradley's better at getting into games in the present. Bradley's also, and they both have kind of have weird swings. I mean, not as weird as Bradley's, but I, don't, I think we had like Bradley up by a half grade, OFP likely. But like, the problem is like three true outcome guys in the low minors don't necessarily turn into three true outcome guys like in the majors. Like this isn't a, a fair comp because he's kind of a he was a, a freak athlete and weirdly freak hitter in a lot of ways but if you look at his minor league stats like he, he struck out a fair amount but not really that much and that's like adam dunn hmm. like adam dunn was like a 330 hitter in the minors uh, is that true damn oh yeah yeah and, and as a like so i'll for comparison's sake they were both 19 years old in uh, a ball. Uh, Dunn was in the Midwest League, which might even be a a worse place to hit. Um, he struck out 64 times in 372 plate appearances, and uh, hit 307. Yeah, that definitely is like, not what that's, you expect. Right, and that started to go up a little bit uh, throughout the minors, but. And again, slightly different eras, so K rates are going to be a little bit lower. But he never really struck out even 20% of the time in the minor leagues. So because this talk of terrible Red Sox depth is a little bit disgusting and we, we want to talk a little bit about give the people a little bit of meat to chew on who are listening to this podcast and you know don't want to think about Chavez and, and Akami, uh, which is understandable. Um Let's let's talk about some of the top guys here. Andrew Benintendi, Divers, and Grom. Um, out of those guys, can you talk about some of the real standout tools that that they have, and you know what stands out to you? Obviously, they're incredibly toolsy to be ranked within the 101's top 30 here. Um, you know, it, I'm just gonna kind of let you freestyle on those guys and gush about them a little bit. Sure. I think the hardest thing to evaluate is whether or not a player will hit major league pitching. And I'm pretty sure Andrew Benintendi is going to hit major league pitching. And not just because he did it for 100 at-bats already, but if everything I saw from him in the minors and other members of our of our staff did, you know, it's like without a 70 hit tool on him, and I can't really 
think of another guy that jumps to mind immediately that we also did that with. I mean, Swanson might get there. There's a couple others, but you know, we're very confident in Benintendi. It's not huge power, but he's going to hit a ton of doubles, and he'll certainly have enough power uh, in Fenway to make the offensive profile look very nice in a corner. Uh, Devers is an interesting one because I said before that like age relative league is more important for hitters than it is for pitchers. You know, he was 19 in advanced day. And the numbers don't jump off the page, but they're quite good. Um, and that includes a pretty bad start to the season. Uh, you know, it's a potential plus hit plus power. Right. That's uh, a really, really good third baseman. He might not be a third baseman. So that's sort of the issue there. Like, the arm's fine. He's not, you know, for his size, he's a pretty good athlete, like, He's a better base runner than you'd expect for a guy that built like he is. But double A is going to be a fun test. You know, I'm trying to see if he's going to stick at the hot corner long term. We did hear that his defense improved last year. Was that it's not like it's yeah yeah it's not bad. It's not um, like it's it's sort of like what what kind of tolerance you have for below average defense at any given position. He's probably not going to uh, even be average there long term. And just like he's only 19 and the body's a little soft. And you know, how does that change in his 20s? Um, you know, the obvious comp is going to be Pablo Sandoval. Mm. And that's going to come up, I'm sure, as he uh, moves through the minors. But it's a, you know, it's a potential impact bat wherever it ends up. So, um I, I say we don't rank many first base prospects sort of in reference to Akami, but we do rank a lot of future first basemen. They're just not uh, their first baseman in the minors. Like Devers has a bat that will, will survive the move across the diamond if need be. And Groom, it's the curveball. Like the velocity is nice from the left side, but it's like, it's just pretty. And he has some feel for it. He's only 18. It's a big... I guess he's 19 now. Oh, he's only 18. That's right. He was a young guy. He was 17 on draft day. Um, so I'll spend almost all of next season as an 18-year-old. He's tall, big-framed. You know, it's, it's there's nothing in the delivery that makes you think, oh, God, he's a reliever long-term. I mean, he might end up a reliever because every pitcher might end up a reliever. But, uh, you know, that's if you were building a prep starting pitching prospect from scratch it would look a fair amount like groom because there's still some you know some leanness and projectability there uh um, you guys sit go ahead yeah i was gonna ask um uh, with groom because he is so tall at six six um we've seen a couple of guys top prospects recently lucas giolito tyler glass now um have some issues getting their delivery together and sometimes they lose their release point and you know all these things that are natural for somebody who's that tall um, when you're when you're scouting a guy who is this tall and trying to project them out as uh, a viable starting pitcher going forward, like what are you looking for in a six six or a six eight pitcher um, that tells you like, hey, this guy's coordinated enough to repeat his mechanics enough that he's an effective pitcher, or you know, 
what what scares you off because because it is it's really he's a really tall guy yeah i mean six six isn't like i think there is a difference and this is like a matter of degrees probably but there's between like six six and six eight i think mm. like i did so you're like ideal you know if you were creating the mold for a, a starting pitching prospect it's like it's like roger clemens it's like six four two thirty all legs you know matt harvey has that kind of body too um uh, it doesn't necessarily look like Noah Syndergaard, who's got a very simple delivery and is a kind of an athletic freak in a lot of ways, too. So you really just want to see general athleticism. And it's tough for a 17-year-old that's still growing into his body to a certain extent to determine it at this point in time. But his delivery is not bad at all. It's pretty smooth. It's pretty repeatable. Uh, you know, there were little things... Uh, my colleague Jared Seidler saw him a, a fair amount and, you know, start to start and within starts, he didn't always hold his stuff uh, that well. But it's like it's a high school pitcher in New Jersey. Like it does. You're looking for really the basics and you assume you can sort of mold him from there. And you really can't teach that fastball from the left side or that kind of feel for spin. And you just kind of go from there. I'll say there's no obvious red flags uh in the delivery like there might be with someone like riley pint where you're worried about oh it's gonna be a little bit of a of a tougher road to hoe to get that all under control mm-hmm. i think i don't think that's as as much of an issue with groom certainly at this point in time so for six six prep guys who are not even old enough to drink he's fairly safe yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, you ought to use that standard. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you make of the makeup issues that have been associated with him? Because uh, that was talked about so, a lot. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. I've heard all of that stuff. I can't repeat any of that stuff. Um, I don't believe most of that stuff. Um, if you can imagine it, it's probably been said about him. Okay. Uh it's just it's it's one of those things where it's like again it's a 17 year old kid i don't like the the stuff that's a little more credible is like all right it's a 17 year old kid it's not like anything and i want to say like i have no special insight here um obviously the red sox i would imagine did their due diligence and you know sat down with the with the family and the kid and did all the stuff that signing scouts do um it's um, there's so many different ways <laughs> you know we can call him low risk for a you know a six six 17 year old pitching prospect but there's so many different ways that can go wrong that don't even involve anything remotely makeup related um i don't really want to s- speculate um Personally, I was hoping he would go the uh, he had gone the Clay Buckholz route and had just stolen a bunch of laptops. So yeah. it's disappointing you don't have that sort of insight for us. No, I I can't be like. I mean, again, it's you know it's a 17 year old from Southern New Jersey. Let your imagination run wild. <laughs> okay, so fair enough. Better or worse than stealing a lot of laptops? Depends on what. Depends on which rumor, really. Um, and depends on the quality of the laptop, like a Chromebook. Yeah, yeah, like, no one, yeah. <laughs> no one's gonna miss that. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's just like hilariously outlandish stuff at some points too, because 
it's one of those things where there's probably a kernel of truth in some of it, but there's nothing. And look, some teams I I can say were scared off by that. It seems but, like kind of a lot of them were. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that was like a bonus. So there, the rumor was that he floated a really big bonus demand to drop to the Padres. Mm. And the Padres were going to try to get Quantrill and Groom. And they had some sort of pre-draft deal. Um, that didn't work out that way because the Red Sox just said, man, screw it, we'll take it. And I guess they offered him a little bit uh, above slot, but not significantly so. They said, ah, he's here, we'll, we'll pop him. He's a big, tall prep guy that throws hard, and our general manager is Dave Dombrowski, so <laughs> we're required by law to uh, take this guy. I mean, I know I was shocked when he fell to us. Ben, what was your reaction when when you were watching the draft or you know following it, obviously, as we follow it closely, um, when, when Grom dropped to the Red Sox? Uh, I, I was just a little bit pleased. <laughs> we'll put it that way, because <laughs> I did not I did not think he would fall to us either. I mean, I think we ranked him as the second highest draftee in the 101, just behind uh, Nick Senzel, who is a slightly more safer college bat. Right. Needless to say. Um, so, I mean, there were plenty of people that had him 1-1 throughout most of the spring, and then it was just like, yeah, these, these things can can shift wildly as we get closer to the draft, and sort of the nature of the the draft pools and the slotting system so, makes guys like this fall. You know, it happened to Blake Rutherford, too, for, a, a, I think, a similar reason. He was floating a... So the rumor there was, of course, he was floating a, a certain bonus demand to drop to the Mets, so... If you could throw a Major League comp on Grom right now, what would, what would like, a 90th percentile development be for Jason Grom, just to give people out there a little bit to salivate on? So, uh... Jarrett Seidler, who wrote his entry in the top 10 list and saw my fair bit this year through a Rich Hill comp on him. I think that's sort of like a like healthy Rich Hill or 2016 Rich Hill, which is like even his one healthy ish season, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. that kind of like that kind of lefty curveball merchant with a pretty good fastball, um, you know. That'd be nice. Yeah, man. Nice. Yeah, I'd take that. Yeah. That's like, a, I guess that's probably a number two in this day and age. Yeah, number two with that pick in this system would be uh, an, an excellent outcome. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, in your write up about the system, you talked about the reluctance to throw 70 or even 80 grade hit tools on particular players, but you guys did end up throwing a 70 grade hit tool on Andrew Benintendi. Um, you know, over my time following this stuff, I've seen 80 grade power and 80 grade speed tools given out. Um, you know, it's not common, but it happens. Um, why don't 80 grade hit tools ever get given out? I think there's a certain amount of like nuance that goes into like, look, 80 grade hit means he's going to hit 320. Right. Essentially is what that, so that's the standard scouting scale. And it isn't really era specific, so it doesn't recognize that dudes are striking out a ton now and not hitting believe in 300 that much anymore. Um, but to sort of project a top of the scale hitter, you have to be really confident in a lot of different sort of 
skill interactions so pitch recognition barrel control bat speed so it's not even just like oh this guy doesn't strike out in the minors like yeah but what's his quality of contact like that's really important too and you don't really see this as quality of contact and being as major league stuff i've seen plenty of guys like you know and, and 80 powers is 80 power 80 pay it, like it may not always get into games because of, because of hit tool issues but you know john carlos stanton is always gonna put on a show in batting practice like that's never going to be wrong you know an 80 80 speed you just click the stopwatch right those things are easy to see you can see it visually 80 fastball you read the radar gun and you make your adjustments for command and movement and whatnot too but it's just like you're not gonna miss on those is like i guess what it really comes down to like again you know joey gallo might have 80 power and he might it might never play in games to that level because he might hit 210 or 220 um you know, Ray Black has an 80 fastball, but never might never pitch in the majors because he doesn't really know where it's going and doesn't have anything else. I've myself have put above average, even plus hit tool guy uh, grades on guys, and those guys have gone hit to 20 in the majors. Hmm. That's like a that's a that's a 20. That's a yeah, right. A 30. But like guys hit 20, like Kevin Ploiecki is sort of the classic example of this. I was lower on Kevin Ploiecki in the minors than a lot of other evaluators. Um, but I always thought he'd hit. Like, I didn't think it was anything special. I thought he'd hit 260, 270. Like, he's clearly not going to. <laughs> um, and, like, that's a bad miss. And I keep going, like, through in my head where I missed on that and, and what went wrong. Look, he never had a ton of bat speed. He had an aggressive approach at the plate, uh, even in the minors, uh, despite – you know, fairly high walk rates. Um, you know, a lot of times in the low minors and certainly in, in college, guys aren't always going to throw, be able to throw strikes consistently enough. Um, and his eye is not that bad, certainly. It's like where, you know, he comes up to the majors and he's rolling over everything to shortstop or third base. And it's like, again, it comes into sort of like quality of contact. He wasn't a big strikeout guy. It's just like, how do you evaluate that how are you sure of it until you see it against major league pitching and major league sequencing um it's just it's much much easier to to miss i think on the hit tool grade than it is the other ones would you say it's the hardest single tool to grade either that or fastball command Mm -hmm. catcher defense probably catcher defense honestly um is it because they like, really do all need that major league litmus test to make sh- you know damn sure that that observation that you're making is what you think it is? I think so to a certain extent. I mean, we're we're still gonna put we're still gonna make calls on these guys. I just think the it's a trickier thing to do. The, the variance is what swamps you there for the most part. But I mean, like at least I can like see the basic underlying factors like with catcher defense i don't even see that shit <laughs> like like literally in some cases i can't see like glove positioning and stuff from behind home plate but also sort of like figuratively when it comes to like game calling and pitcher management and you know sort of the soft factors as well that we're just sort of starting to uh realize and try to quantify the value of interesting 
Very interesting. Yeah, well, that's all. That's all awesome stuff. Uh, ben, you want to hop in there? Yeah, I have one uh, one quick wrap up question before we uh, let let Jeff go. So, Jeff, you sort of tipped off us off earlier in the podcast when you said that the Red Sox would have a, a bottom ten system now. So, I won't ask you exactly where they would rank because that's probably a little bit pedantic. But uh, you know, when you're talking about bottom ten systems. Obviously, there are those that are just totally devoid of talent, like the Diamondbacks or something. Uh, but then there are going to be some systems like the Red Sox where they do still have some elite talent and then it drops off really quickly. And I'd imagine some systems where, you know, maybe they have a, a lukewarm seven or eight and then it drops off. So uh, maybe this is too hard to sort of evaluate in a vacuum. But which do you prefer, sort of the star power and the you know the real shallow, or would you rather sort of diversify the risk but lack that potential franchise cornerstone? So I will say we ranked them in the same general vicinity of, unsurprisingly, the Washington Nationals who did the same exact thing, right? And have similar uh, impact talent at the top, but also the like the Toronto Blue Jays that are a little more flat. Mm-hmm. One to ten, um, the Cincinnati Reds that do have a couple uh, top one one hundred and one types, but are also you know more in look look more like the Blue Jays system. Past that, I just I, give me the impact talent, and I guess I guess for purposes of org rankings, you do have to consider how bad it uh, or how quickly it drops off after that. But like, I mean, honestly, I think as Red Sox fans have seen. If you get Bogarts and Betts out of the system, who cares about the rest? You know, who cares that Henry Owens, yeah, you know, is not that good, and Brian Johnson is now your fifth best prospect? Like, you don't have spots for all these guys half the time anyway. So, and you know, especially at a, in a team built to compete year in and year out. Like, but you know, you find a spot for Mookie Betts, you find a spot for Xander Bogarts. You know, you'll find a spot for Andrew Benintendi, and when the time comes, you'll find a spot for Raphael Devers if he's on that level. You know, beyond that, really, like, you know, developing a, a Brock Holt is nice, um, but it's not really making a huge impact to the, you know, the Red Sox chances of winning. You can find roll five guys when you have the, the Red Sox uh, financial muscle. All right. Awesome. Well, um, with that, Jeff, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on and spending some time with us, kind of chopping up this, the remnants of this list and, and talking to us about the way that you evaluate some of these guys. So uh, we definitely appreciate that. Um, for everybody out there, uh, again, you can find Jeff uh, Paternostro uh, at, at Jeff Paternostro uh, on Twitter. Uh, give him a follow there, especially if you're into prospect stuff. Um, you can give Ben a follow at, at Ben Carsley, uh, and you can give myself a follow at, at Dev Jake. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. Oh, thanks again for having me. All right. And uh, for those of you out there, we will be back regularly now uh, that spring training has started. So um, go ahead and listen to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and you can rate and review us there as well. And uh, thank you guys for joining us, and we'll be with you next time.